Welcome to Healing with the Masters. We are so delighted that you've chosen to hang out with us for this series of speakers, inspirational wisdom, powerful affirmations, invocations, activations, prayer, and healing. Healing with the Masters represents transformation to ignite your light and to show you a framework of possibility for moving into a new way of being in your life, modeling that for others in your life, and changing the whole planet. Enjoy this powerful series. Now, if you're interested in joining us live, then just go to hwtmpodcast.com. That stands for Healing with the Masters, hwtmpodcast.com. Register there for the current season. And did I mention? It's free. Join us absolutely free. You just have to register. But for now, enjoy these shows because they created the most amount of transformation. They created the most amount of buzz, insights, and miracles of possibility. These are just as powerful as the day they were recorded. The vibration and energies are still present and available for you. And if you're listening to them, it's because you're ready right now. Know that you helped to create this content. Your desires and intentions have brought this very broadcast here before you. So listen, engage, and enjoy. And again, if you'd like to join us in our live season, remember to go to hwtmpodcast.com. You just have to register. Join us, experience the light, absolutely free. Now enjoy this show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Healing with the Masters and Volume 13. And I want to welcome you to this incredibly powerful season. This 2014 set of seasons is unique and that it's our second season of the Aquarian Age. Now, this means that there's a time change, there's a shift, um, and this year appears to be one of let's get her done. This is our soul group opportunity to commit to our journeys and engage in our lives, and in the process and together make a difference on this planet. We are so delighted that you've chosen to hang out with us this season, and I want to remind you that you are beckoning forth all the content on this and every show of this season of Healing with the Masters. Your intentions, your intuitions have brought forth this very moment. So everything is here for you. And that's what's so powerful about our Healing with the Masters community. You create the content in part through your intentions. And I also want to remind you that the healing part of our name means transformation. It means realignment. It means repattern. It means you are in a pathway to change it. And we are so excited at what you're about to create. Now, you may think that the masters are the remarkable speakers that we're bringing on each week, but we know that you are actually the master you are seeking. All of the answers are within you. And the master teachers you're hearing on this series are giving you nudges and hints as to who you truly are, this powerful, bright being of light and love. Now, today, I'm very, very excited to welcome a very special guest. This, this woman, this lady, this uh, amazing soul uh, has gone through a, a wild and crazy journey um, and has come out uh, as someone who can really offer tremendous, deep, authentic, and congruent guidance. Lisa Lissa Rankin is a doctor. She's an integrative medicine 
physician. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's an amazing, profound, professional artist that actually made a career as an artist. She's also the founder of the online health and wellness community, owningpink.com. Um, discouraged by our broken healthcare system, Dr. Rankin set out to discover why some patients experience miraculous cures from seemingly incurable illness, while others remain sick even when they receive the best medical care. Fueled by a passion to determine what really makes people healthy and what really predisposes them to illness, she dug into the medical literature to study how doctors might better care for patients. Her research led her to discover that patients have self-healing powers beyond our wildest imaginings and science proves it. What is so amazing about Dr. Lissa Rankin is that she is a doctor and a scientist as well as someone who observes <laughs> and understands the anecdotes and the power of self-healing. She's got both of these things and allows them to come through her information. She is now leading a pink medicine revolution to help patients heal themselves while encouraging the healthcare industry to embrace and facilitate rather than resist such miracles. She aims to feminize how healthcare is received and delivered by encouraging collaboration, reconnecting healthcare and spirituality, and empowering patients to tap into the mind's power to heal the body. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Rankin, to Healing with the Masters. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here with all of you, especially those of you who are listening in. So you have a, a very interesting story. You, um, you were an a, a OBGYN doctor working really, really hard, um, and then you moved your practice to integrative medicine years later. I know there's a huge story in behind that, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you there you were in Marin County with the healthiest people on the planet, supposedly. These are people that eat gr drink green drinks every day. They exercise every day. They're doing yoga and Pilates. They're meditating. Well, maybe not meditating, but they're doing some amazing things, and yet... You, you, you kind of discovered that their health issues were very similar to those of the inner city in Chicago. So share, share a little bit about what your insights were in that moment and what you, what you decided to do from there. Well, it was pretty shocking for me to move to Marin County and, and start working with this patient population. And they had seen their, the best doctors at Stanford and UCSF, and they had been to their naturopath and their acupuncturist. And as you said, they were engaged in all of these very healthy behaviors, and they were some of the sickest people that I'd ever met. And these people had, like, wow. the laundry list of chronic health conditions, and they were suffering from all kinds of chronic pain syndromes, from chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme disease, irritable bowel syndrome, all sorts of skin disorders, gastrointestinal disorders, severe kind of menopausal issues. They were really suffering. A lot of these people were, uh, were really kind of bedridden with exhaustion, low energy, and all these sort of vague uh, physical symptoms. And, you know, it's funny because we don't really have a diagnosis per se for the kinds of vague conditions that many of these people have. I, I now sort of realize what we were looking at. So I wound up feeling pretty helpless when I was taking care of these patients because they'd already had the best of, of Western medicine. They'd already, you know, really dived into alternative medicine, and I was kind of feeling like, well, what can I offer? And I wound up just switching my intake form. I started asking the kinds of questions that doctors don't usually ask you. 
And some of these questions were pretty confronting to people. Like I would ask people, what is your body saying no to? And they'd look at me with these big eyes and start crying. Or I'd say, what does your body need in order to heal? And people, you know, at first I thought they'd give me treatment intuition. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to help them access their kind of healing intention and intuition. But they started saying things to me like, i got to quit my job. i got to divorce my husband. I need to put my dad in a nursing home because he's making me crazy. You know, I need to finally go to art school because it's time for me to put myself first. And I started saying, well, then, you know, why don't you do that? And they'd look at me like, well, I can't do that. So I started asking people, well, let's make it, let's make a, a wild assumption, and I have no proof that this is true, but let's make a wild assumption that if you actually did what your intuition is telling you you needed to do, that your health conditions would be gone. Would you be willing to do it? And I was shocked how many people said no. Wow. No, if they had the choice, they'd rather deal with the illness than, with the, than face the consequences of what it would take in order to make that kind of change in their life. I got very fascinated about this because some of my patients got really brave and they said, you know what, I would do anything. I would do anything. And they did. And they started doing these, making these wild changes. I started teaching this process that I called writing the prescription. It's a six-step process that I teach in my book, Mind Over Medicine. And, and it's all about sort of making the diagnosis, identifying the root cause of your illness. It's not about the diagnosis that your doctor might have given you. But, you know, what might have predisposed you to having your immune system weakened or what might have disabled your body's natural self-healing mechanisms to put you at risk of disease in the first place and what might you do to counteract that? And so my patients started writing these sort of action plans of here's the things that I need to do and then they had to face the book that I just finished writing is called The Fear Cure because, of course, once they wrote this list, all their fears came up. So I realized I was sort of missing a piece. I needed to write the sequel. Uh, but, but those who were able to deal with all of the fear that came up and were able to cultivate courage and really start to make changes in their life, they started having these spontaneous remissions. And my cognitive mind, I have a very cognitive mind. I went to you know, Duke University in Northwestern. My dad was a doctor. I grew up in very kind of academic situations with a, with a very analytical mind. My cognitive mind had no paradigm for that kind of thing. So I started, I started researching spontaneous remissions, and what I found in the medical literature changed my life. And I also was taking seven medications for myself by the time I was 33 for a whole host of chronic health conditions that my doctors assured me were going to be a lifetime, you know, lifetime issues. And so I started wondering, wow, if, if this works for these patients, like, could I do this for myself? And so I went through the process of writing my own prescription, which is in the appendix of Mind Over Medicine, if anybody's curious what I actually did. And I started doing those very, you know, scary and brave things myself, and I'm now down to half the dose of one of my medications. I'm completely free of all of my symptoms. And it it completely changed how I looked at health. And so it led me down this journey of, like, what the hell was that? You know, (laughs) what... Can we really heal ourselves? I mean, you hear about it in the New Age literature. I always dismissed those kinds of, you know, woo-woo, you know, crazy people books. Um, (laughs) That's not just, (laughs) you know. Most of whom are on Healing with the Masters. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right? My, I mean, I, my dad died eight years ago during what I came to call my perfect storm, and I, I think sometimes, like, my dad would just must be up there looking down like, what happened to you, honey? I raised you so well. <laughs> or he's going, yes, she's getting it. <laughs> I know, it was so sweet after my book came out. My, I got an email in my inbox from my dad, and it's this love letter from my dad of how proud I am of you. Of course, my mother wrote it. Oh, it's the sweetest how thing. Beautiful. I cried. It was oh. I cried. She's like, your dad is so proud. So, um, anyway, I wound up going on this journey uh, into the medical literature because my cognitive mind needed evidence. What is this? And I was shocked to find how much evidence is in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association. I mean, mainstream, peer-reviewed medical journals, and yet I wasn't taught any of this in medical school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was shocked when I read Bernie Siegel's Love, Medicine, and Miracles, which was published in the 80s. Yeah. You know, and I read it three years ago. And you subsequently um, became friends with him, right? And at Bernie's one. I, I now run a training program for doctors right. and other healthcare providers called the Whole Health Medicine Institute, and Bernie's one of our faculty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I now I'm now so blessed. The people in my inner circle are people like Rachel Naomi Remen and Bernie Siegel and Larry Dossie and <laughs> you know these real pioneer Christian Northrup. These people are pioneers in the mind body medicine movement and they really were trailblazers back in the 70s you know like rachel was doing this back in the early 70s the only female in her medical school class Mm. Uh, and rachel and i just taught a teleclass together called medicine for the soul so none of this was even part of my paradigm this was four years ago so it's not that long ago (laughs) you know so i um i kind of had my cognitive mind blown open and what I found in the medical literature inspired me to write Mind Over Medicine because I felt like, you know, I, I, I really wrote the book as if I was making a case to a jury of my peers, including my father. I dedicated right. the book to my dad. And so, you know, it was very interesting, the reception. It, it got a lot of attention. It was a New York Times bestseller. They made a PBS special about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a documentary coming out about it. So it got a lot of attention. And so much of it was from people that have believed this all along, but it gave them the evidence to say, see, we knew. <laughs> now there's a doctor <laughs> showing us evidence from the New England Journal. But for me, it was all shocking. I mean, other people were like, duh, we knew this. And for me, it's like, are you kidding me? This is, <laughs> this is real? You yeah, know? but there's something about the white coat. And you talk about this in your book, that there's something about the white coat that is part of the process of healing because it's inculcated into our culture. So um, you being a white coat, coat, writing a book about this allows a, a lot of us to say, oh, thank God, it was real, even mm. though we kind of knew it, but we had to have someone. So talk about the process of how um, someone who you respect and care about can actually make a difference in the healing process. How someone that... So like a doctor or or a therapist or, you know, what role do they play in that healing process? Well, it's it's a very important role. In fact, there's a a professor at Harvard, Ted Kapchick. His research is fascinating, and he's very mainstream. His, His research studies come out in the New England Journal of Medicine. He's the head of the program in placebo studies at Harvard. And he's done a lot of media. The New York Times has written him up, and he's been on NPR. And very, like I said, very highly respected uh, professor. 
And he's also a Chinese medicine doctor. He's not a PhD and he's not an MD. So it's pretty shocking that he has this level of influence. And I love Ted Kaptick's work. So I interviewed him for my book. And I said, Ted, what is it? Why does the, we were talking about the placebo effect. You know, for for those of, I'm sure all of your listeners know what the placebo effect is. But for those of you who might not have heard this term, it's basically when patients in a clinical trial are told they're either going to get the drug or the surgery or they're going to get the placebo, the artificial, you know, fake drug or fake surgery. And a percentage of those people getting the fake treatment get better, between 18 to 80 percent. Sometimes the placebo effect is very high. Huh. Fake, fake surgeries are more effective than fake pills. Fake injections are more in- effective than fake pills. So the more intervention comes with the fake treatment, you know, the more effective it is. So I said, you know, obviously it's some sort of combination of positive belief and the nurturing care of somebody in a white coat saying, we believe this is going to help you. And, you know, something in this process, and I I described the, the physiologic mechanism in detail in Mind Over Medicine, but something about this process activates the body's natural self-healing mechanisms, and then the body can start to heal itself. So I said, Ted, do you think it's mostly belief? You know, is it mostly that we really believe that this pill is going to make us better? We really believe that this surgery is the answer? And he said, no. He said, I think that's actually secondary. He said, I think it's the love. Wow. I think it's the... I think it's the... Uh, that that authority that we give to those people in the white coat and the nurturing care that they can hold for us. You think about somebody who's sick, who comes to the doctor and they're anxious, they're, they're in stress response, they're in with the body, you know, what Walter Cannon at Harvard called the physiologic stress response or fight or flight response. And whenever the stress response is triggered, the body's natural self-healing mechanisms don't work. But you come in and if you've got a real healer, and many doctors are real healers and many are not. So, you know, and a lot of doctors don't even identify with that word. The, the doctors in my training program, they all identify with the, the archetype of being the healer, and that's part of what connects them all. But if you're, if you're in the presence of a real healer, you think about it, and all of a sudden you're not by yourself. You know, you're dealing with an illness, but there's somebody that's holding the experience with you. They're holding the container for your own healing process. I think of my friend Nancy Novak, who was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer, and she had a very poor prognosis. And she went to her doctor, and her doctor basically told her the dismal statistics of her survival. And she wasn't buying that. She's like, wait a minute, that's not my story. This is not taking me down. And she found this doctor at Stanford, and this doctor gave her his home phone number, his pager number, his office number. He sat down next to her and he said, Nancy, I know the numbers are dismal, but I've seen people with exactly your illness who are cured and they're still alive 20 years later. And I believe you can be one of those people. And regardless of what happens, you're not going through this alone. I'm, I'm here with you. We're in this together. And she said her whole nervous system relaxed. The minute he said that, she felt like, I'm not going to die. This is not going to take me down. It's been more than 10 years. Nancy's cured. Wow. And I hear (laughs) stories like that over and over again. And I think as a healthcare provider, it's very empowering and inspiring to realize we have that kind of power and we can facilitate. Again, we're not doing anything to the patient. We're just holding the container. And I think of it as really sort of a spiritual calling. 
it's like, just like you were saying at the beginning of this, of sort of holding the vibration for everybody who's listening to this call to have their experience. A real healer can do the same thing. We just hold a vibration mm-hmm. for people to lift themselves to a level where the body can do what it knows how to do. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to be able to do that. It's, it's an honor to be in the role of someone who can hold that container. For yeah, people. and the, the current medical model doesn't really allow it. That, that's a different conversation. Uh, there's something that it's you said. It's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> there's something that you said here that, that is just like, wow, that I'd like you to talk about a little bit more. Mm. That the natural self-repair of the body, which is miraculous, you know, uh, that, you know, the fact that a cut can heal, um, that that um, a protein can heal itself, that, that the body really does have a natural healing intelligence, but it only works when it's in the relaxation response. So can you walk us through the stress response yeah. and the relaxation response? That blew my freaking mind when I yeah, read that. Yeah, it blew mine. It oh, blew mine. Oh, my God. I, I, listen, <laughs> I've got stars around it, and I've got a wow around it. I mean, <laughs> holy jumping. So you can walk us through a little that a little bit more. Sure, sure. So we know that the body has natural self-healing mechanisms. It's, I mean, we're taught this in medical school. It's in our physiology texts. We know that we all make cancer cells every day. You know, we all walk into a room, and it's full of bacteria and viruses and fungi and whatever, and we don't get sick, right? So, um, you know, all the time proteins are breaking, the body is aging, things are falling apart on a daily basis. And then every day these self-healing mechanisms, they come in and they clean up and the immune system does its job and we go to sleep and, you know, things get put back together and our anti-aging mechanisms kick in and all that. So we know that. But what I didn't realize until I started researching all of this is that those self-healing mechanisms are part of the body's natural homeostasis, right? And there there are many processes that are just part of the body's natural homeostasis, like digestion or reproduction or you know filtering the kidneys right these are these are just things that the body is doing all the time on its own but the thing is whenever the the body's natural homeostatic mechanisms require that the nervous system be in what Herbert Benson at Harvard called the relaxation response so there's two states of the nervous system we've got the sympathetic nervous system which is the fight-or-flight response, the stress response. And we've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxation response. And the parasympathetic nervous system is that homeostatic state. So the parasympathetic nervous system is where the body's natural self-healing mechanisms kick in, right? Because the body says, okay, all is well. It's just time to do our, you know, our daily maintenance, right, our preventive medicine, but whereas when the body's in stress response, what the, the message that's being told through the nervous system is you're getting chased by a tiger, right? You're right. about to get eaten. Uh-huh. So forget about digestion. Forget about healing the, you know, preventive medicine, healing the body. Forget about filtering the kidneys. Well, all we want to do is increase blood flow, increase heart rate, get blood to the big muscles so you can run away, you know, shut off all those unnecessary mechanisms. And that makes sense, right? Because if you really are getting chased by a tiger, it doesn't matter whether you're fighting a cancer cell today because you're about to get eaten. Right. Right? You've got bigger problems right now. Right. So a stress response, if you're in threat, the stress response should only last about 90 seconds. 
And as soon as the threat is over, then it should wash away. So we fe- you can feel this sometimes. You're in the car and somebody pulls in front of you and you slam on your brakes and you feel that whoosh go through you. Mm-hmm. And as long as the threat is over and you don't make up other stories about it, then, you know, your body goes back to its relaxation response. But the problem is, in modern society, studies show that we're in stress response on average about 50 times per day. Holy cow. And the problem... 50 the times problem a day. Is that, yeah, <laughs> and we're not getting chased by tigers 50 times per day. Wow. So the, the problem is that the amygdala in the limbic brain, it can't tell the difference between I'm getting chased by a tiger and a thought or a feeling or a belief like nobody loves me or I'm not good enough or my body can't heal itself or I'm going to die. Right? So we have these thoughts and to the amygdala, all of those are perceived as threats. I mean, even something simple like somebody just spilled red wine on my white carpet. <laughs> We've I mean, got a fighter. We've got a fight yeah. or flight going. Oh, my goodness. You're going to have fight or flight going. One, one of my friends just created a medical device that's like a bracelet. It's, on, it's going through patent right now that will literally 24-7 measure when you're in stress response and when you're in relaxation response. Uh, you know, and, and you can chart it. So That's going to wow, freak some people right in. out. <laughs> you what? That's going to freak some people right out to see what... Well, it's shocking yep. because some of, the, some of the things that this device has found is, like, being hungry will trigger your stress response. I mean, right. it, it makes sense, right? Because sure. the body is thinking, wait, maybe there's not more food. <laughs> right. So if we skip meals, we're actually triggering stress responses. And every time the body's in stress response, it's not able to do its natural self-healing. Every time the body is in stress response, it's not able to do its natural self-healing. That's right. And what you're saying now is pretty much everything in our modern life (laughs) puts us in stress response. Exactly. So I love the story. One of the stories I told in Mind Over Medicine is the story of the people of Rosetta, Pennsylvania. And it's such a shocking story. Uh, that's from it, Malcolm Gladwell's book, isn't it? He, Malcolm Gladwell told it, I think, in Outliers. In Outliers, that's right. I actually talked to Wayne Dyer about this about two seasons ago. This is great. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm glad you're talking about it. It's actually from the medical literature. This was, this was reported in the medical literature. And there, were, uh, there was a cardiologist who was at a, at a bar with the local doctor of, of the people of Rosetta, Pennsylvania, and this doctor was saying it's so weird. These Italian immigrants that live in this little town, they, they never die of heart disease. They just die of old age. And this cardiologist, this was in the late 50s, early 60s, kind of at the height of when heart disease was at its peak. It's still the number one killer in this country, but we have a little more awareness about it now. So this cardiologist was fascinated. He went in and he looked at the death records, and he found out that sure enough, the people of Rosetto had half the rate of heart disease as the rest of the country, and they had much lower rates of other types of acute illnesses, and many of them were, in fact, just dying of old age. So he sent in a whole team to study them, thinking maybe there's something in their DNA, maybe there's something in their diet, maybe we can learn something from them and reduce our rate of heart disease. And long story short, after studying everything, they found out it wasn't their diet. They were eating meatballs fried in lard because <laughs> they couldn't afford olive oil. And they're eating pizza and pasta, and they're drinking a bottle of wine every night, and they're all smokers. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, you know, they have hard lives. They're working, the men are working in the rock quarry, and the women are working in the blouse factory. And, but they all shared this very tight-knit community, 
And they lived in multi-generational homes, and they shared this group intention that they were going to create a better life for their children than they had for themselves. And what the researchers concluded is that these people had half the rate of heart disease because they were never lonely. And what they, you know, they talked about the effect of consider the single mom in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, a single mom without good support. She wakes up every morning. She's got her three kids. She's got to figure out how to get them to school. She's got to get herself to work. She's trying to figure out how to pay the bills. The school calls. One of them's sick. How is she going to go take care of the kid? She might lose her job. She's trying to figure out how to meet her work duties. What about her social life? When is she going to have time to meet her own personal or romantic needs? When is she going to have time for self-care? The overwhelm of just trying to get through the day for the single mom with no support, she's just in stress response all day long. Right. Whereas in Rosetto, even though these people had kind of tough lives and they had tough diets and they had tough jobs, they didn't have to deal with that. If somebody was sick, the community would help out. If they were down on their luck, the community would lend them money. Nobody was on welfare. They were, you know, the, the elders were living in the same house as the babies. They had multiple people helping with child care. They all got together every night for communal dinners. They went to the same church. They shared the same faith. They shared the same hopes and intentions, and they, they had this support of this community around them. And what the researchers concluded is that because of that, the body was in relaxation response, and they, were able, they, they, they put so much less stress on the heart that they had half the rate of heart disease for the rest of the country. And so, you know, as things went on, the children grew up. Indeed, the parents did give them a better life. The kids went to college. They met people outside of the community. The community wound up, instead of everybody coming home and having a glass of wine at the neighbors and everybody eating dinners together, they started moving into the suburbs. They started making phone calls to make appointments with each other. And by the 70s, the community had disbanded, and the rate of heart disease in the people of Rosetto had gone back to the national average. Isn't that something? So it's a a great story with a sad ending because it's like our culture conspires against our body's natural self-healing. But it's a choice. It's a choice that we have. So, so you know, you know all this stuff, Lisa. What what do you do to to <laughs> to stave off loneliness in, in our crazy culture? I mean, what what, well, what kind of things can we do? You know, it's funny you say that because I, I one of my fantasies is just to live in a at a retreat center, and my house has become this funny place. We've I live in a family we've created from chaos. So I live in a house now, right now, with my ex-husband, and who's the father of my daughter, with my daughter, so we're co-parenting my child, and my mother comes and spends several months of the year with us, and one of my former clients who has become family lives in our guest house, and right now my, uh, you know, my gay friend is sleeping on the, the, uh, the floor of, the, of my yoga room, and we and we all have our family dinners together, and everybody chips in, and everybody helps out with childcare, and everybody cooks and cleans together, and you know we have this funny little compound. But nobody's ever lonely here. <laughs> hey, do you have a guest room? Just <laughs> <laughs> you know what? They're all full right now, which is why Dennis is on the is why Dennis is on the yoga room floor. <laughs> wow. But I, I I honestly have this fantasy of like. I can see just having an intentional community of 15 people that share common space and and recreate Rosetto in the you know in the uh, in the modern world. 
But I also am very intentional about the other people in my life and, and of really calling in that spiritual support, sort of the soul community that I have. I'm part of a ecstatic dance community in the Bay Area, and we, you know, and, and it's a it's a really supportive community. One of the things that I've, as I've talked about all of this on my book tours and my PBS tours and stuff, is there's a real pain that gets activated in people when they hear the Rosetto story, yeah. where they say, "But wait, I don't have that." Mm-hmm. And there's this yearning. It's like we are tribal beings. There's this yearning to be part of the collective. And so many people are so lonely, and they don't realize that they're right next to somebody else who feels just the same. And we can, we have the choice, you know, and I mean, even just the people on this call, like, we're all here as part of this same tribe, and yet you may be sitting in your bedroom listening to this feeling like, but I'm not, I'm not with you, I don't see you, I can't hold your hand or have dinner with you. And yet each of us have the opportunity to create that kind of soul community for ourselves. And it, we can start with just one person, just one person. And I, I, I mean, of all the things, one of the questions I get asked commonly is, okay, you know, I teach about a wellness model called the whole health care. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. It's ten facets of scientifically proven uh, things that affect the health of the body. Mm-hmm. Most of which are not what any doctor would, rec- you know, is regularly talking to you about. And people have asked me, of, of those ten things, what's the most important? And I think the most important is relationships. Wow. I think knowing that we belong, that we're part of the collective, that we're loved and supported, that there are people that accept us yeah. for who we really are. It's the most relaxing thing to the nervous system to be able to walk through the world, even when you're by yourself, and know that you're part of that sense of oneness that unites us all, not just among our friends and family, but on sort of a, on a cosmic plane of humankind all being connected with this, you know, on this spiritual level of, um, you know, we're all, we all came as stardust. We're all part of, <laughs> the same thing and it's like somehow if that switch gets flipped and you realize that you're not alone Mm. something happens to the nervous system that is more i would argue is more profoundly affecting the health of the body than what you eat or how much you exercise or how many vitamins you take or how many drugs you're taking Mm -hmm. or any of that and it's um it's not something we talk about a whole lot and it's Disruptive. It's a little disruptive to talk about. Uh, absolutely. Because people feel a little helpless. Well, it's also part because we're now in charge. Right, exactly. Um, so, and again, just to remind you, remind you folks that uh, the, relaxa- the relaxation that's triggered is actually the uh, part of the, the nervous system that allows, allows the natural healing intelligence to do its work. Allows exactly. the hormones to be balanced, allows everything to work well. When we're in fight or flight, when we're in that stress syndrome, um, it doesn't work. I mean, again, that just blew my mind. So, exactly. so this notion of relationship and community creating this relaxation that allows us to then have uh, like the space. The, it's like the body has space now to heal. The how exactly. Do, but but how? And do I realized. Yep, I ahead. mean that that's what that's what I realized when I was working with these patients in Marin. It's like they were, the symptoms they were having were, were the symptoms of a diagnosis we don't have in Western medicine, which is that we should have a specific diagnosis that is 
here are the effects of chronic repetitive stress response. Mm-hmm. That's what they were suffering from. And, of course, being in that way predisposes you to a whole other slew of physical illnesses that are real. They're not in your mind. They're triggered by the mind, but they're physical in the body because those self-healing mechanisms are flipped off. And, you know, part of the process that I walk people through in Mind Over Medicine is about figuring out how to flip off those 50 stress responses per day. What can you do to minimize those, and what can you do to proactively flip on relaxation responses? Because there's a lot of data, and I include all this science data for all the nerds among you like me. (laughs) Um, All the data that proves, for example, that meditation puts the body in relaxation response, tons of data around that, that playing with animals, taking naps, um, engaging in creativity, sexuality, being with people that you love, you know, surrounding yourself with that sort of community, um, acts of generosity, all of these things have been proven to activate the relaxation response and improve the body's ability to heal itself. And when you think about it, these are fun things, right? This isn't, you think about living a healthy life, and a lot of us think about deprivation. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, when you look at the, what scientists call blue zones, those areas in the country, in the world, where there's a higher than usual concentration of people who live to be over 100, mm-hmm. these people have really good lives. I mean, they don't wear watches. You know? <laughs> they, they nap every day. They walk to work. They eat from their garden. They hang out with a community that supports them and that believes in them. They you know, play. They, they play. They play a lot, you know? Yep. And this is not a bad way to live. And yet many of us feel like, well, I can't have that life. And yet we're choosing. It's, people fall into this, you know, Martin Seligman calls it learned helplessness. <laughs> wow. The, I, I, learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Mm. And there's all kinds of data that shows that learned helplessness actually reduces the body's ability to heal. And, and there's a fascinating study that was done by Madeline Vicentainer looking at rats that were injected with a type of cancer that's known to kill the rats within 20, I think, within a month, basically. Um, 50% of the time they'll die, and 50% of the time they'll, they'll have remissions when they're given this type of cancer. And what she found is that if you put... The control group, you put them in a cage and you do nothing to them, and 50% of them die and 50% of them live. And another group, she put them in a cage and she shocked them. But they could learn how to get away from the shocks. Mm -hmm. So they could learn to avoid the shocks. So they weren't helpless. And, And they did. They learned quickly. And those rats actually had a survival advantage over the control rats. They fought off the cancer more than the rats that weren't even shocked. Whereas the rats that were shocked and couldn't avoid it learned helplessness, and they died at a much higher rate. Wow. So learned helplessness not only puts us in this position where we feel like there's nothing I can do. This is just life. This is just life. I'm going to throw up my hands. I'm going to feel like a victim, and I'm, and I'm just going to get sick. And I, I say that with a lot of gentleness and compassion to anyone who's actually sick listening to this right now because I'm not in any way trying to blame anybody for their illness or say that they're not doing enough. This is not what my message is about at all, Mm -hmm. and it's easy for people to misunderstand that. What I want people to hear is that there's a a flip in perception when instead of feeling like the victim of an illness, we can use illness as an opportunity for spiritual awakening. We can let it empower us, and we can actually use the experience to 
step back for a moment and look at our lives and realize that we're, we're always in choice. And we may feel like we're helpless in a culture where things are happening to us or traumas are happening to us. Jennifer, you and I were talking about some of the traumas in our own lives. Yeah. And it's easy when you're in the middle of trauma to feel like, well, it's all happening to me and there's nothing I can do. But even in that situation, even when there's nothing we can do to stop the trauma, we're in choice about how we perceive the trauma, yeah, how we experience, how much resistance we put to what is. Yeah, there's, there's an opportunity from my perspective to, um, to feel grace. And it feels like that's a big part of your message is, is the, the uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's what I would call it, grace. And, and choice. You know, I'm sure that there are medical studies about the whole notion of choice. When you think you have a choice, I'm, the, the stress response likely reduces. So giving exactly. yourself choice <laughs> is, is a choice. So knowing that, that there's yeah. no one locked into, into a corner. We have not painted ourselves into a corner. You can get the paint on your shoes. It's okay. <laughs> Right? Exactly. We can walk out of the room, and this uh, this notion of learned helplessness, I think, is terribly important. Um, and to me, I would even call it um, uh, I call it the badge of honor of victimization. I've been there. You know, I've been there in my own life. Me too. Where me I've, too. Where I wrote. Like, oh yeah, yeah. You. I'd love you to tell a story about about you being the doctor, um, and what it's what, kind of what that culture is about. Um, you know, uh, not not truly the culture of, of not taking care of yourself. Right. Well, I mean, I, I've I've so been in that victim role. In fact, I wrote when I when I left conventional medicine in two thousand and seven. Right. I decided I was going to write a book about how broken our healthcare system is and what a victim I was at its hands. And I wrote this memoir, and eight editors loved it and went to all these publishing companies. I got an agent. I'm you know. They liked my writing, but 30 publishers turned it down, and the book never got published. And now I'm so grateful that the book never got published because the whole thing was written from my victim perspective. Poor me. Look how the medical industry (laughs) abused me and took advantage of me and traumatized me, and what did I do to deserve this? And, you know, now I'm running this training program for doctors, and the first thing that I say to them when they come in, because they all feel that way, is... This is your profession. This belongs to you, and you're the only. It's your job to claim it. They're not doing this to you. You've let them do this to you. Right. And they all look at me like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to say it with gentleness. And again, when I, it's it's hard to have this conversation with people. And I'm I'm really sensitive to everybody who's listening because it's. I know when my spiritual teachers have kind of pointed out my own helplessness and my own victim perspective in the past it does not feel good it does not feel good so i it's like the the spoonful of medicine that really needs a lot of sugar so i hope those of you who are listening if any of you are feeling uncomfortable i hope you feel the sugar (laughs) and what jennifer and i are are holding here for you it's it's not meant to um you know it's it's not meant to hurt and it's not meant to blame and it's not meant to bring up any of your shame. I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's work, and there's mm. no place for shame in any of all of this. And uh, it's just, I guess, what I hope people hear is that, as you said, when we're in choice, suddenly everything changes. 
everything changes when we're in choice, when we're no longer coming from that helpless perspective. There's a demarcation in the process of trauma that that happens. Um, and, yeah. and for, uh, you know, one of the things we're talking about here is knowing that there is a demarcation, knowing that. I mean, mm. one of the things that you are so empowering people to do is understand this stuff so that they now know that moment of choice. The moment before that demarcation happens is a moment of incredibly high stress. And it is, to me, an indicator. <laughs> Here's your indicator. You're at the top of the stress level because you haven't seen the choice yet. Um, in every business that's ha- ha- uh, collapsing, every health thing that appears to be collapsing, um, every moment when you're in a job and your boss is, you know, it, all those moments lead to that moment of de- demarcation where there wasn't a choice a moment ago, and the next moment it's like, oh, I could quit. Right. Oh, I could right. do this, or I could do that, or I could do this. Well, I just wrote, I just finished writing this book, The Fear Cure, and one of the things, there's a whole chapter in there about how loss, can initiate us, and 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 if we're willing to let loss initiate us, it comes from that choice. It comes from saying, instead of viewing this loss from a place of victimization, I'm going to view this as an opportunity. And it's like Beautiful. flipping a switch, and all of a sudden, all this possibility opens up because now even though the circumstance hasn't changed you know something bad may have still just happened you may you know you may have just been the victim of a violent crime somebody might have just raped you you may have been sexually abused you may have just gotten all of your money embezzled from your company i mean bad things happen Mm -hmm. to good people so i'm not in any way you know you may have gotten a cancer diagnosis and so i'm not saying that those things aren't traumatic what i'm saying is that when we're willing to, to be in choice and switch the lens, when we can suddenly look at it as, wow, what can I learn from this? I like to think about, you know, imagine if, if our souls, before we were born, if our souls kind of sat down with God, and they're like, all right, what are we going to learn this time? What should we do? You know, what should we create in this human experience? What does this soul need to learn in this lifetime in order to evolve as a soul, you know, and maybe it sounds kind of woo woo, Lisa. I know, I know. <laughs> I, so I'm, I, but I imagine that I was having this conversation with my friend Chris Carr, who I interviewed for my PBS special, right. and Chris was diagnosed with stage four cancer when she was in her early 30s, and it was an untreatable type of cancer. There's no, it doesn't respond to chemo or radiation, and it's all over her body, so she couldn't get surgery. And so she felt initially very helpless. And then she decided to take her health into her own hands and started her crazy, sexy cancer documentary journey and has written multiple New York Times bestselling books and teaches about a raw vegan diet and all of this. She's, I, I had her write the foreword to Mind Over Medicine because, in my opinion, she's an example of someone who took her health into her own hands. But I asked Chris when I was interviewing her for the PBS special, I said, Chris, do you think it's possible that your soul and God made this pact? Like, we're going to give you cancer in your 30s so that you can learn to face uncertainty with so much courage and to be an inspiration for all of these other people that you can be a cancer thriver, even in the face of the ultimate uncertainty of not knowing every day whether you might die. And she looked me in the eye and she said, Lisa, my soul would never do that to me. <laughs> oh, wow. 
But we joke about it because, <laughs> you know, I, I wonder that sometimes. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's woo-woo. I don't, I don't know why bad things happen to good people. But I guess my mindset or my perception is such that even when seemingly traumatic things happen to me, I, I try to look at them through a lens of how can I grow from this? Mm. And when I look at it that way, especially when I look at it that way in retrospect, I mean, my perfect storm, which happened eight years ago, it was the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. And when I look back at it, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. And I, I did a whole art project where I was, uh, I was making these casts of women with breast cancer. I had about 25 models that I, I made these sculptures, and I interviewed them. It was called the Woman Inside Project. And I asked them, you know, here's, here's what people see of the outside of you, but tell me about the inside of you. And then I wrote a first-person narrative of the beauty that I saw within each woman, and it became this touring art show. And I was shocked by how many of the women said that breast cancer was the best thing that had ever happened to them. But, you know, that was a select group of people. And there are, there are other people that would say, you know, I was a victim of my breast cancer. And I think that's the part that's a choice. Right. We don't necessarily get to choose whether or not we get the breast cancer. But we get to choose whether we're going to let loss initiate us or whether we're going to let us make us let it make us smaller. Hmm. Yeah, life is uh, from yeah. A lot of what we talk about on healing with the masters is, and in in my own work is life is um, the the greatest opportunity to use what shows up to um, evolve to the next version of yourself. To to me, there's no question that my soul has made. Uh, uh, numerous crazy freaking decisions that um, when I get to the other side of this life, I'll go, what the hell? What are you thinking? I know, right? <laughs> I think I, I came to the realization recently that, because I've gone through a lot of relationship loss uh -huh. in my life. Like, yeah. I've lost a lot of relationships. And I, w I, I had this realization, like, oh, maybe my soul and God made this decision. This time, you're going to learn how to handle loss and rejection with grace. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, by looking at it that way, I was like, wow, okay, so my, that person that treated me badly 10 years ago, I can thank that person because yeah. that person was my teacher Bet. instead of I'm a victim of the guy who beat me up. Yep. Yeah, and I am. I am so with you, and I think it's. Uh, you know, I, I make this joke sometimes because this is exactly what what I, I teach. And um, you know, I was in a room before I came down here, and the abuser stood up and said, "I love you so much. I'm going to do this to you." And mm -hmm. they did it to me, not um, and and to mold me into who I am is my belief. And uh, <laughs> and I I think that there's an opportunity for us to. Um, use those teachings to give us choice. So I have this joke sometimes that when I, you know, get to the other side, they're going to pat me on the back and say, oh, my God, that was so cute that you used to teach that. Oh, how, you're adorable. <laughs> totally not true, but really adorable. But, but it made you feel better. So it's good. <laughs> yep, exactly. What do we know, right? Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're just trying to put meaning on things that sometimes feel meaningless. But if it makes us feel less helpless, then so be it. I, I'm with you. And, and uh, there's some empowering energy behind, behind that. It's not just, a, well, I guess it's the ultimate placebo effect, isn't it? <laughs> well, may, maybe, right? yeah. And, and what is that? We still don't really know. You know, I, I, 
I felt so proud of myself when I wrote Mind Over Medicine because I'm like, wow, okay, I took this miraculous thing and I put it in this nice little cognitive box and I put a bow on it with a nice scientific explanation so my cognitive mind feels very calm and comforted. But the reality is, I don't know. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I think we should call it uh, (laughs) idonno.com. That's the new series. (laughs) When uh, Rachel Naomi Remen is one of my most potent mentors, and she tells me all the time, Lissa, just be curious. Just be curious. That is a brilliant brilliant way to be. Because when we're curious, we're noticing. You know, I'd love to uh, get back from that notion of curiousness, that you actually have come up with six steps to healing yourself. And I think these six steps are are maybe a, a nice way to... To finish up our call today, because it's it's very cognitive and practical, yet each step has within it this profound empowerment. So, could you walk us through the six steps to healing yourself? Well, I can, and and then I have to I have to start by saying that you know, as I as I keep learning on this journey, I've I I have since realized that I got the six steps wrong. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Okay. Well, <laughs> give us the why. corrected six steps then. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why. So I'll tell you the original six steps in the book, and then I'll tell you where I screwed it up. Okay. <laughs> um, so step one is all about believing that it's possible to heal. Mm-hmm. And I, I compare this process to the four-minute mile. So for any of you who haven't heard this story, basically exercise physiologists once believed that the human body was incapable of running a mile in less than four minutes, and nobody had ever done it. And then all of a sudden, Roger Bannister runs the mile in three minutes and 59 seconds, and all of a sudden, all these world-class athletes start running sub-four-minute miles. Hmm. I think the the world record now is something like three minutes and 43 seconds. So it was like suddenly just one person breaking the rule changed the belief of the entire world and, and, and completely shifted the whole athletic community. And for me, when I started witnessing spontaneous remissions and reading case studies of people, the, the Spontaneous Remission Project, which was published by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, is over 3,500 case studies in the scientific literature of spontaneous remissions from everything from stage 4 cancer to a gunshot wound to the head to heart failure to HIV. And... Even, you know, the minute I read that all of the health conditions I was dealing with, there were cases of spontaneous remissions in the medical literature. All of a sudden, those diseases were no longer incurable. And just shifting that belief suddenly opened up. It's like it opens up a one-way doorway. You can't come back through it. And once you believe that it's possible, there's no guarantee, Mm -hmm. but once you believe it's possible, suddenly there's an opening that, well, Okay, you know, like my friend Nancy, okay, I have stage 4 ovarian cancer and my prognosis is poor, but I could be one of those people who's cured. Right. So that's step one, and there are things that you can do, proactive things that are in the book, to shift belief. So if you don't believe that, and many of us grow up with all these limiting beliefs about our health, like, oh, heart disease runs in my family, or, you know, my my parents don't live very long, or I'm always going to be battling my weight, or all these limiting beliefs, but there's actually things you can do to shift belief permanently. So step two is all about finding the right support. We talked about the doctor as the placebo, as the container, as that loving, nurturing, healing force that Ted Kapchick says is even more powerful than belief. So finding the right support may include not just finding the right doctor, but it may be, I I talk about the healing roundtable. 
And as the patient, as the empowered patient, you, nobody else should be in charge of your healing roundtable. You know, you you want your doctor to be your consultant. And the doctor may have great influence at the table, but you don't want to give all your power away. One of, one of the things, my agent was the first person to read Mind Over Medicine, and she called me after she read it and she said, Lisa, this book changed my life. She said, before I read this book, I honestly thought my body was none of my business. I thought my body was like my car, and when it broke down, I would take it to the car mechanic, and I would expect my car mechanic to fix my car. And if the mechanic didn't fix my car, I would get mad at my mechanic. <laughs> and I've done the same thing with my body. And she said, after reading your book, I realized my body is my business. My body is nobody my business. Wow. My body is my business because nobody but me knows how to flip off my stress responses and turn on my relaxation responses. So finding part of that empowerment of your body is your business is finding those people that will help support that, whether it's your naturopath, your life coach, your therapist, your best friend, your doctor, Whoever it is that needs to be at that table with you, it's your responsibility to find the right people. And that means not playing the victim role of like, oh, I've got a bad doctor. Well, you're in choice. You can get a second opinion. You can fight your insurance company. You can do something to try to change so that you're able to find. Because, I, I, you know, I'm training these doctors. There are doctors all over the country that come to me saying, we're looking for the kinds of patients who want to be part of this mind over medicine sort of process. So that's step two. Okay. Step three is all about tapping into your inner wisdom, into your intuition. I call it your inner pilot light. And it's about trusting that inner voice. And there's a lot of exercises in the book that kind of teach you. Because people are like, wait a minute, I don't hear that voice. How do I learn to trust that inner voice? Um, And one of the things that I do for my community is I have a free daily email that's uh, called The Daily Flame. It's messages from your inner pilot light. And it's sort of a love letter from your highest self to your ego. Nice. <laughs> and it, it, it's helped a lot of people to really start to hear that voice within themselves, and people can sign up at innerpilotlight.com. So step four is one of the most uncomfortable steps. It's about diagnosing the root cause of illness. And this isn't about the kind of diagnosis that the doctor gives you. So, you know, you may, you may have... Um, And I'll give you an example. I was supposed to be having lunch with a supermodel friend of mine, and she had to cancel because she was sick. And I said, well, don't worry. I'm a doctor. I can come do a house call. So I came to see her, and she had bright red tonsils and pus on her tonsils, and it was obvious she had strep throat. So that's the diagnosis, right? That's the conventional diagnosis. I said, so obviously you have strep throat. It's caused by the strep bacteria. You need penicillin, right? That's the traditional answer. I said, but let's just play a little game here, and let's assume that three or four days ago you were in a room somewhere where there was a strep bacteria and 100 people were exposed to it, and you're the only one who got it. Why did you get it? So it's not denying that the strep is causing the Mm -hmm, strep throat, right? mm -hmm. It's not denying that she needs penicillin. I'm I'm absolutely not anti-Western medicine in any way. We've increased the life expectancy of, of Americans by 30 years in the past 100 years because of Western medicine. But, you know, what might have predisposed you? What might have weakened your immune system? Is there anything that might have been putting you in distress response three to four days ago? And might we learn something from that? And she looked back at her calendar and she was like, oh, that was the day that I was in this meeting with my agent and there's this corporate endorsement deal and they were wanting to use my face to sell this product and I was feeling out of integrity. And she put her hand on her throat and she said, but I didn't speak up. Wow. There you go. So that's 
that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about mm-hmm. is are we willing to be brave enough to actually look underneath the diagnosis to see is there anything, you know, I, I had this conversation a lot with the breast cancer patients that I included in that art project. Is there anything that, that you feel might have predisposed you to the breast cancer? Because we all make cancer cells. Why might you have gotten this one? They all had an answer. And it wasn't a self-blaming or self-judging answer. It was just truth. And it was very often I put everybody else's needs before my own. So that's, there's a whole exercise. Mind Over Medicine goes through this. And for those who don't have the book, you can actually do this exercise um, free. on um, Mindovermedicinebook.com has the self-healing kit that you can download. And it has the whole step four process that we also can go We also will be giving away your special offer shortly, which has a lot of this stuff in it, too. Oh, perfect. Yep. Perfect. So, um, but again, the, absolutely, that, this free free bits that you take advantage of, please. <laughs> yeah. So, so that information is really, really helpful for people to start to get insight into. Instead of feeling victimized, it actually gives people the capacity to, you know, to really take ownership of their part. And I, I asked Christi- Christiane Northrup, like, how do we talk about this without people feeling like we're blaming them? And she mm-hmm. said, tell them that. We're responsible to our illness, not for our illness. Wow, we are responsible to our illness, not for our illness. So we're responsible to re- react, respond um, from this new place of yes. responsibility, of um, investigation, of noticing, of paying attention, of asking these questions. Exactly. Chris Carr says, I participate with my cancer. Mm, interesting. I so that's step four. Step five is all about writing the prescription. So basically, step four, uh, step four leads people to create an itemized diagnosis. So, and again, in my book, um, I list my own. And then based on that itemized diagnosis, what can I do to reduce stress responses and increase relaxation responses in my body in order to facilitate my body's natural self-healing mechanisms? And then step six is where I got things wrong. Okay. <laughs> so step six is all about surrender. Right. It's basically saying, okay, now you've done steps one through five. You've done everything that's within your power to be proactive and empowered, right, mm-hmm. in order to improve the chances that your self-healing mechanisms are activated. So you've now been proactive about making the body ripe for miracles. And yet, step six is the acknowledgement of the fact that that's no guarantee. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be cured. Hmm. And there's that part of, like, turning it over to divine will. And I, one of my spiritual mentors is Tosha Silver, who wrote a book I love called Outrageous Openness. And Tosha, I, I was doing a workshop with Tosha, and I went up to her afterwards, and I was like, oh, Tosha, I wrote my book wrong. <laughs> and she said, yes, sweetheart. And I said, Step six isn't surrender. I said, step one is surrender. And she said, yes, sweetheart. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that my approach to letting go and trusting the universe and really surrendering, my tendency in the past has been I do everything I humanly can, like my ego does everything it can Mm -hmm. to control the situation. And then I'm willing to fall on my knees and give it over. Yeah, and there's a new paradigm now, isn't there? There's a new paradigm of starting with surrender. I love starting this, with Lisa. surrender. This is great. It's, it's it like is. the minute you identify the desire or the problem, 
the minute I identify, oh, I'm sick and I want to get better, yeah. step one is surrender. Yeah. Step one is, am I willing to actually turn that over to divine will? And that doesn't mean that I'm passive. It doesn't mean that I won't do the things that, you know, it doesn't mean that step one through five aren't important. But if we can actually just call upon a higher power to participate with us so that we don't feel like we have to control the whole thing, but mm-hmm. that we're actually willing to let our illness initiate us in whatever way it's supposed to. Let our illness then, initiate us. <laughs> hmm. So that was a big thing for me because, you know, I watched my dad get diagnosed with a brain tumor and die within three months. Mm. And I learned a big lesson with my dad, and I learned that there's a big difference between healing and curing. Mm. And step six is really about that for me. It's about the fact that if, if you've gone through the other five steps and you've surrendered this over, then you will be healed even if you're not cured. But that process facilitates cure. So if cure is in alignment with what wants to become, whatever you want to call that, the highest good with divine will, whatever, if cure is aligned with that, then going through these other steps of healing will facilitate that process. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to happen to all of us. We're all going to die. Yeah, we're, we're not getting die. out of here alive. Every one of us. <laughs> you know, I often, gonna... I often wonder if, if that, um, uh, one of the things that I'm learning through my own crucible um, is this notion of not doing to receive, um, but being to, to be. And, and I think that's part of what you're talking about here with surrender, which is, um, you know, surrender truly is letting go of the need to control, letting go of that need to have a particular outcome, and instead allowing the flow of your soul to move through your life. And I, I think that is, is a lot of what you're talking about here. And much of what you're talking about, too, in the, in the whole, whole realm of, of moving into new kinds of relationships, new kind of professional lives, new kinds of spirituality, new kinds of, I mean, listen, some of the, some of the spiritual people I've met on my path are the most obnoxious ego-driven people ever. So spirituality is not the cure by any means. Well, the spiritualized ego is, is even more destructive. More destructive and dangerous without a doubt. Than the blind, you know, than, than the, the sort of innocent, uh, egoic consciousness that drives many people in our culture where there's not even awareness of it. So yeah, it's, it's the, a dangerous path. <laughs> it is. The dogma of spirituality, you know, and I... For I, sure. Is, ...is a powerful um, uh, nocebo. <laughs> mm, absolutely. I agree. So my final question is about love. What role does love play in all of this? Well, I think that's why I said, you know, of all the things that are most healing to the body, it's relationships. Right. Because relationships are about love. And I think it's that, it's not just that human love that we have that, that is so, you know, promoting oxytocin in our bodies, endorphin in our bodies, which are all things that activate the body's self-healing mechanisms. But it's about that divine love as well. It's about that unconditional sense of love and acceptance of knowing that you belong in the world that relaxes the nervous system and really promotes the body's ability to heal itself and increase your longevity. So I think, you know, what is love? It's, it's everything. I mean, I, w- I was talking to Dean Ornish, 
uh, who ha- is a cardiologist who's done so much research on uh, reversing heart disease. I mean, he's basically proven through his program that you can take coronary artery atherosclerosis for people that are, you know, thinking about getting surgery to, to open heart surgery, and you can reverse their atherosclerosis through his program. And it's a program that includes diet and exercise and meditation and group therapy and all of that. And I said, Dean, what do you think really, what, is, what really is working here? What's really doing it? And he said, well, I had to include the diet and the exercise and all of that in order to get it covered by Medicare. He said, but really it's a conspiracy of love. <laughs> he said, we get these people together in a circle, mm. all these people that are dealing with heart disease, and we just love on them and they love on each other and then their heart disease gets better. <laughs> I mean, how awesome is that? That is it. That it's a is conspiracy it. of, of love. love, baby. <laughs> there's a book title. There's got to be one. Totally after. right. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get Dean to write it. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Dr. Lisa Rankin, for joining us on Healing with the Master and joining us in a really remarkable conversation. Um, I feel different from it. Um, I'm actually even a little emotional at the the possibility that that you have shared that allows us to to feel how powerful we are. Um, and I, I thank you for, um, for all you've been through to get you to here to guide us in this new path. So thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor and a blessing. Thank you so much. Mm. And thanks, everyone, for participating in this powerful series and this powerful call. Um, I am so honored that we um, have been able to play together. And uh, you, you make such a difference on this planet through just participating in these calls and taking on some of these practices. Uh, you get to model it for other people what's possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you've, you've uh, played with and done. And, uh, and thank you for being part of this community. I, I love and honor you so very, I'm so honored and privileged and love you so very much. So thanks everyone. Thanks Dr. Rankin and um, bye-bye everyone. Thank you. And remember, if you'd like to join us for any of our live shows, just register absolutely free at hwtmpodcast.com. That's H-W-T-M as in Healing with the Masters, podcast.com. Come and join us. Just register for the current live season. <laughs>